Power. Power from on high. Amazing. All right, restart the recording. We'll keep Werner in prayer. Uh, he's doing well, and his spirits are up. Um, this morning, we're going to continue in Matthew. And Matthew has this theme going on, and he's being very intentional. Uh, but, but today, where this is going to meet us is when we experience things in life that really rock our world, you know? And as I was thinking about this, uh, <laughs> I think a lot of times we, we blame the enemy. And a lot of times it is the enemy, isn't it? That Satan is buffeting us with storms and trials and flaming arrows of you know, doubt and uh, sicknesses, job loss, financial difficulties, marital arguments, and all kinds of things that really challenge us to, to stay faithful to what we believe. Um, but we don't often think of them as from God. Or, or maybe you do, and it's just me. But, but often, God is the one that puts that in your path. You remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray? And he said, well, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You remember how that prayer ends? How, how does that prayer end? Somebody help me with that. Well, before that, that's, that's arguable if that's really part of the prayer, but some translations have it. But just before that, lead us not into temptation. Now, who is he talking to? You're talking to Father, our Father, hallowed be your name. You're holy, so you don't sin. Don't lead me into temptation. Now, why would a God who doesn't sin lead you into a temptation? Now, the issue there is that when Matthew wrote that, when we looked at that, temptation can mean trial. A, temptation, a trial can turn into a temptation because in that trial you may be tempted to doubt God. But God is not putting it in your way to tempt you like he wants you to. That's from Satan's angle. That's deliver us from the evil one who makes that trial a temptation. But God leads us into trials or can lead us away from trials. Okay. The whole trial that Job went through, was that not God's doing? Now God's not tempting him to try to do evil he actually knows ahead of time that job won't fall into that temptation doesn't he that's why he that's why he's showing off that job is is this strong in his faith but oftentimes the the struggles that we're dealing with god put it there for a reason and if we don't understand what that reason is we're going to really have a hard time with god we're going to really have a hard time with him because if he didn't put it there, then he's the one going, oh, I don't know why it's there. Uh, and then God needs to pray to somebody else to help him help you. But no, God knows it's there. God knew it was coming and he allowed it to come and he allowed it to hit you. It didn't hit your neighbor. It didn't hit your friend. This is your trial. This is your difficult circumstance. And God specifically allowed it to happen to you. And we can blame God or figure out what, what God's angle is in this. And it's not a guessing game. He tells us. And this passage is going to help us understand that, how to deal with those kind of difficult circumstances. So we're in, we're in Matthew, and we're in chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. If you have your Bibles, please do turn there. First book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 14. We're going to start in verse 22. Why does God allow 
difficult things. Okay. He just finished feeding a crowd of over 5,000 on a hillside with a basket of some scraps. Fed them all with this. Amazing miracle. We unpacked that last week. And then verse 22, immediately, immediately following that episode, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. That's like five miles wide, something like that, at, at the point where they are. While he dismissed the crowds, he wants them to go ahead of him without him to the other side. Verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Now, when this says the wind was against them, it doesn't mean it just was blowing the wrong direction, so it's taking them a little longer. Keep in mind the, the, the waves are beating against the boat, and your mind goes back to Matthew 8 when they almost died in the last storm. In the fourth watch of the night, uh, the Romans divided uh, the, the nighttime from sunset to sunup into four watches. This is the fourth one, so this is between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. This boat is being beaten by the waves. And Jesus, verse 25, in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. Well, what else can it be? And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. And when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, I started out this message saying that God does these things on purpose to you. And, and I get that from different passages, but I do get that from this text. Notice that um, it says in verse 22, Listen to what he tells the disciples, or how, what it says, what he told the disciples. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before them. So it wasn't like Jesus said, I'm going to take a time out and go pray. You guys hang out for a while, do whatever. And because they were fishermen, they really liked the sea, they went in the boat. He made them do it. And this isn't just, you know, like a random translation. The, the, the word behind it, it means to compel or to force. He commanded them to get in the boat and go out into the sea. Another little clue we get is the word immediately. Now, when, when, when authors do that, he's trying to let you know that this wasn't like a long time later. This wasn't a few days later, a few weeks, or this could have happened years later. He just decides to put the story here. In actual real-time events, right after Jesus did that miraculous thing with the bread, he intentionally tells them to go now, go on the sea. 
And, and so Jesus, there's an agenda here. He's trying to teach them something in light of what they just learned. These are a succession of lessons. Why were there 12 baskets left over? Random? Something's starting to click with the disciples. Okay, he's, he's teaching us something here. These aren't random miracles. You know, there was a lot of things Jesus could have done that, were, that, that could have been awe-inspiring, but they were symbolic. They were, they were intentional, and this is, this is no different. I want you guys to get on this boat. Uh, now, some people I've heard, they said, wow, this is amazing that while Jesus is on the mountain, somehow he realizes that they're in trouble. I don't think he realized it then. I think he knew this was what was going to happen. Like later in a few chapters when they, they, they don't have tax, and Peter's like, you know, walks, walks in the room, and, and Jesus knows what's on his mind. He goes, should we pay tax, yes or no? And then they have a little debate about that. Not a debate, but he's teaching Peter. And he says, now go to the, go to the sea and, and put the hook down there, and you're going to catch a fish. And that first fish that you catch, pull it up, and when you open its mouth, there's going to be a drachma in there. Pay the tax with that. How, how does Jesus know? He, how does he know? He's not a man. He's not just a man. Right? And so that's what he's getting at here. And so he knows what's going to happen on that sea. He knows they're going to be beaten by the waves. And he knows he's going to have to go out there and meet them and teach them something about himself. And so these storms in our lives or these difficulties, anything that comes into your life that that is a test, is a trial, it's intentional. God allows it for a reason. Well, so what's the reason? What is, Jesus, what is Jesus getting at here? Well, the point of the lesson, he's trying to teach them something about himself. I encourage you, we've been going through Matthew kind of at a slow pace. I encourage you to go through it at a fast pace. Read it like in a week, and you'll, you'll, you'll see how the stories like piggyback each other, right? And then you'll see like themes pop out that you couldn't see if you read it, you know, over the course of three years or however long it takes us to finish this series in Matthew, right? And you'll see that one of the themes is Jesus is trying to get them to understand who he is. In Matthew 8, when he calmed the storm, they, they're like, who is this guy? Who is this guy that he could command see? And he's like, keep going. Keep, keep going with that. Now, when he does this, when he has them out on the sea and they're getting beaten up by the waves and beaten up by the storm, they have to deal with this trial. And in that trial, he wants them to focus on something. He wants them to learn something in the midst of that trial. What does he want them to learn? A couple of clues. The first is when they're full of fear and they think it's a ghost. In verse 27, Jesus said, take heart, it is I. Now, when I was looking at this, I realized that what he's saying there is, um, and, I, and I hate to get, you know, too nerdy here, but this is really important. The Greek behind that is ego eimi. Emphasis on I, I am. I, I am. Other places we see that is like in John, when they're saying, well, who, who are you? How do you know Abraham? Abraham was born way before you. Well, before Abraham was, I am. Ego eimi. Why would he say that? You remember when Moses saw the burning bush? He's like, oh man, is that going to start a brush fire? Because then I got to get the sheep out of here. Well, it's not catching on any other bushes. Well, I had to wait a few minutes and that bush will just burn up and turn into charcoal. And then he feeds a couple sheep and then he looks at it again. The bush won't finish burning. Intriguing. There's nothing else to look at out there in the wilderness, right? So he goes up there and checks it out. He encounters God. And God is like, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. You know, things that you're incapable of doing, I want you to do. Who's sending me? Who do I tell them sent me? Who, who, who are you? A, a sideways way of asking, who are you? You know, I am. And that's the word from which we get Yahweh. 
In the Hebrew, when he says I am, that's how they get Yahweh, and Yahweh is the name for God. All the good Jewish boys would grow up in the synagogue learning that that's the name for God, Yahweh. In fact, a lot of them wouldn't even say it out loud. They, They wouldn't say that name out loud. It's just too holy. It's too precious. And he's walking on the sea. Take heart. I am. Then it's the fact of what he's doing. You know, he didn't fly to them. He didn't appear in the boat. He, you know, he, 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 he didn't swing in on a vine. I mean, he didn't come in on another boat. And all those things would be miraculous. How's he, how's he, how's he on another boat? No one's rowing for him. There's, there's no sails. Interesting. No, no. He's specifically walking, treading through the water. Now, a lot of us, you know, we don't spend enough time in Scripture, you know, but these good Jewish boys that would have frequented the synagogue would be f- so familiar with Old Testament imagery of what God is like. I want to show you a few. Okay, so we're going to put a few up on, on the screen for us to look at. Old Testament texts that describe what God is like, what Yahweh is like. In Job, it's the, he's described as the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Imagine one of the disciples was in that for their devotions that morning. And then at night, they see this man walking and trampling the waves of the sea. Look at the next one. You have entered into the springs of the sea. Have you entered? God is questioning Job. Have you ever done this? Have you? Because I do. Have you ever entered the springs of the sea? Do you walk in the recesses of the deep? No, is the answer. Why? Because only I can do that. Why? Because I'm God. Psalms are rich with this imagery. Psalm 65, 7. Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the people? Who does that? Who can do that? Who can calm a storm? God only. God only. Look at the next one. Your way was through the sea. God, talking about Yahweh. Your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. Hello. Imagine that was your devotional that morning, and then Jesus is walking on the water. Look at the next one. Psalm 89.9. You, God, rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Awesome. Look at the next one. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. As as powerful as waves can be and can capsize the largest of ocean vessels god is mightier than that he can trample it he can walk on it let's go to the next one the last one he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed but why does jesus do this twice in a row with the disciples trying to emphasize you ever teach your kids the same lesson twice why would you do that we did this last week yeah but you don't get it yet so we're doing it again You don't teach him once. You teach him multiple times. He's going to multiply bread again in a couple of chapters. How's that fit for me as a preacher? I preached that already. I got to get through it, you know. I mean, there's repetitions on purpose. Did you know he cleansed the temple twice? He didn't do that once when he kicked everybody out of the temple. Twice. How many times did he calm the storm so the disciples can learn who he is? At least twice. Twice that we know about. And so here again... He's walking, now he's walking on the water. Last time from the boat, he says, shh, and the storm stopped. Now he's walking through the storm uh, on the water toward them. And so there's a, uh, a building up of miracles here. 
There's a building up of miracles. The fact that Jesus knew there would be a storm and sends him on their way to go meet it. The fact that he walks directly to them without GPS coordinates. I mean, this isn't like, you know, I'll take, you know, Arlington Heights and then make a left on Central. You're out in the, in the sea. Even if it were calm, it's difficult to navigate. But you, not, you can't see the stars. It's raining. I mean, there, he's, not, he's not using human navigation tools here. He goes right to them, walking on the water through a storm. Now, sometimes we have pictures, you know, you Google Jesus walking on water, and it's like a picture of a calm, serene thing, and he's walking, and there's little ripples behind him. No. Waves that are about to capsize a boat, he's walking through that. I can't picture it. I mean, even if we made a movie about it, it, it would have to be so cgi you know what I mean? How do you, how do you picture a man walking? Not, whoa, whoa, you know, he's not tipping over. He's not swimming He's not half like, you know, he's not, he's not having a difficult time. He's walking because he's mightier than the sea. He's mightier than these waves. And so the succession of miracles, he's walking directly to them. He's walking through a storm on the water. Let's not the fact, forget the fact that he calms the storm. At the end of this passage, we read that he, he calmed the storm. It's the storm just... But the greatest miracle in this passage... It's not just that God, the God-man, walked through the storm on the water, which is amazing and helps us understand who he is. But then Peter joins in. Notice Jesus didn't calm the storm and then invite Peter out. Jesus invited Peter out and later calmed the storm. That means Peter is walking through the same mess that Jesus is walking through. They can probably barely hear each other. Maybe the wind was blowing exactly so they could carry the voice and they could barely hear each other. But Jesus is close enough to the boat where they're within earshot, you know, even though the waves are crashing. And Peter gets out of this boat that's being beaten by the waves and walks on it. The, the greatest miracle in this passage is that Jesus is able to somehow divest his power into someone who is not sovereign, someone who is not amazing. And is able to allow them to enjoy the benefit of his might. And so Peter walks on the water. What is Jesus getting at here? And Jesus is trying to get them to understand that he's God. This is why Peter kind of puts it like in a test. You know, if it's really you, well, it is really me, Peter, but me is a loaded pronoun. Who's me? Who am I? Am I the I am? You get that yet? Come here, come here, you know. And then Peter gets out that, and as he's wrestling with this, and he's realizing this, this is not just a rabbi. You know, this is not, I thought it was like a parlor trick when he broke up the bread. Uh, you know, I still wasn't sure, but he's walking on this water, and now he's, now he's walking on the water too. And so somehow God is able to, through Jesus, empower Peter to walk on the water as well, experience the miracle in the midst of the storm. Like we all know very well, and we just read, Peter fails. There's success at first, and he starts walking on the water, but then there's a failure, right? Then he starts to sink. He starts to feel like he's drowning, and he asks the Lord to save him. Lord, save me, in verse 30. Why did Peter fail? What changed so that the power that was available to Peter to walk through the storm was no longer working for him. What happened there? 
the lesson he was learning, he began unlearning. The lesson is that Jesus is God. Jesus is mightier than ocean. Jesus is mightier than waves. Jesus is stronger than wind. Jesus is above all those things. As mighty as those things are, Jesus is mightier still. The text tells us what he missed. Peter got out of the boat in verse 29 and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, now nobody can see wind, right? You can't really see wind. You can see what the wind carries. Like when the rain, when, it's, when you look out the window, you're like, man, it is raining sideways out there. In a sense, you're seeing the wind. The wind is carrying the rain horizontally. That's how strong the winds are. You see wind when trees are falling over. In his case, he sees wind when the boat looks like it's being capsized, when the waves are reaching, you know, 8 feet, 10 feet, when it looks like a tsunami is about to hit him. That's what it means when he says he saw the wind. He sees the effect of the wind. That wave is going to kill me. This water is going to drown me. When he first got out of the boat, He's focused on how great Jesus is, but then when his focus switched to how great the wind is, in fact, greater, it must be greater than Jesus. Look how powerful it is. Look how loud it is. It's going to swallow me up. And so he lowered his faith in who Jesus is and placed more faith in the wind and immediately began to sink. The point of this lesson is to increase the disciples' faith in who Jesus is. And where Peter faltered was by placing his faith in how powerful the storm is. That's what Matthew's point is. It's about faith. In verse 26, when the disciples saw Jesus, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out in fear. They cried out in fear. They didn't trust God. They didn't trust Jesus who told them to go out in the ocean or out on sea. But they cried out in fear instead. And then verse 31, when, G- when Peter falls in, Jesus says, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? It's a rebuke. And what he's rebuking him for, what he's you know, chastising him for, is for little faith. A little chumpy faith, a little tiny faith that doesn't work. It, it's not doing it. It's not having an effect in his life. There's some kind of faith that's there, but it's, it's so little and it's too little for how much you've, you've been exposed to, Peter. You've, you've been exposed to so much. How can your faith still be that small? Why did you doubt? Why did you doubt me? Why did you doubt that I'm above this storm? That I can walk through it and I can make you walk through it? Why did you doubt that? Peter put more weight on the circumstance than in Christ. And so that, that's why God does that, guys. That's, that's why God allows things into your life to test to see if you think that thing is bigger than him. That's why he does it. He wants to test your faith. And by testing your faith, he's saying, I want to see if you are going to think that thing is bigger than me, that a job loss is bigger than me, that that." You can't see a way out of this. It, it looks like this is going to have to be uh, a divorce, or this is going to have to be, I don't talk to my kid anymore. Let's just not talk to each other anymore. We don't go to reunions anymore, because there's just no way out of this. This is too big. Well, too big for me. Is it too big for God? Is it, is it too big for God? 
Sometimes I think our disobedience is a lack of faith. Like that song, I was thinking about it when they sang that song, Trust and Obey. Doesn't, what does trust have to do with obey? If God is telling me forgive this person and I can't forgive that person, isn't there something I'm not trusting? That if I forgive this person, they'll do it to me again. If I forgive this person, I'll be vulnerable. If I give this to this person, they'll trample over me. If I give this to this person, then I'm going to have nightmares at night. There's always some fear that kicks in as to why we don't obey. And so what, what, he's, what he's trying to communicate to the disciples is if you're going to walk when I tell you to walk, if you're going to go out into a, uh, into a boat when I tell you to go out into a boat, if you're going to do whatever I ask you to do, you have to do it because your faith is in me. If your faith is in circumstances, you're never going to survive as a disciple. Now, just remember, these guys had to learn this because they get killed for Jesus. They die for him. They do eventually get it, but they don't quite get it yet. Peter tries and gets it for a moment, and then loses it, which is another interesting thing, isn't it? Is it possible that you can get it and then kind of lose it a little bit? And I'm not talking about salvation. This isn't salvific. But just in terms of your discipleship, your ability to faith your way through storms, and the storm isn't necessarily hard, hitting harder than another storm, but it's, it's you losing your focus. And, and we can lose focus. It's like a camera. You can take pictures all day. It's not the battery, but some pictures come out better than others. Why? Because some were in focus and some weren't. You can still take pictures, but that's little faith. It's, it's very little value to look at a picture that's all blurry. I can tell it was daytime. I think maybe the lights were on. Maybe it was nighttime. I don't even know. This picture's worthless. It's not going in the album, you know? Focus is the secret. What kind of focus? What is faith like? Well, as we begin to understand what faith is like, and I'm even learning from this, you know, I just, there's a sense in which you either have faith or you don't. Some people don't have faith, some people have faith. And that has to do with salvation. Like the hour I first believed when we sang that in Amazing Grace, that's talking about salvation. You place your faith in God. But once you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you trust Him as your Savior and you follow Him as Lord, your faith was just born. You've got to feed it. And your faith grows and your faith increases. Like we talked about a couple weeks ago, that's why some people in the church have the gift of faith. Don't we all have faith? Yes, but some people are like super faith people. When they put their cape on, there's an F on it. Now, some people have an H on it because they're really good at hospitality. They're just so good at it. Some people have maybe evangel- the E on their cape because they're just so good at evangelism. Doesn't mean you shouldn't talk to your neighbor. God may had you live next to that person. So next time you're both out there cutting the lawn, you know, say something. Don't go, well, that's not my spiritual gift. So everybody has faith, but, but faith can be increased. Faith can be worked on. It's like a muscle. And you can work it out or you can starve it. It can be little or it can be massive. So what Jesus is saying is there's a little bit of faith there and there was some faith that got you out on the water to begin with and then you faltered. So the nature of faith is such that you're always going to have faith in something. Faith in God or faith in something else. When you place more in something else, the scale tips. You have a little bit of faith in God, but it's, it's little because there's certain circumstances that, that, that are going to cause you to doubt that God can do anything about it. Or someone like Job, it's like this. Man, take his family, take his job, take his friends, take his livestock take his money take his kids take his wives except for the one that's gonna be a jerk about it you know satan 
strategically leaves her alive, tells her, to, tells him, why don't you just curse God and die? Hmm, I see why he left her alive. And for Job, the, tail ne- the, the scale never tipped. Right? No matter what the circumstance was, God is bigger. And even when at the end he's like, why is this scale even here? God still answered with the same thing to increase his faith. Can you walk on water? No, you can't. I can. So be quiet. He, he didn't give Job the answer. Well, the thing is, you know, Satan came up to me and we had this dare. Job, I'm so big that you, can't, you shouldn't even ask that question. You should just trust me. And that's it. And Job's response, you're right. I put my hand over my mouth and repent that I even asked the question. And so what Jesus is trying to teach the disciples is to have that Job-like faith. No matter how big the waves or how much the wind, don't put your faith in those things over me. I'm bigger. I'm greater. Faith is understanding that God is greater than all circumstances. That's faith. And the greater your faith, the greater the circumstance can be, and you still, you still keep, keep going, keep moving. So in this lesson about faith and doubt, doubt puts more confidence in the scary things. They were afraid. They called out for fear. He thought he was drowning. He called out in fear. So that's the theme here. Sort of the opposite of faith is fear. And when you fear the boogeyman in the closet of life, I mean, you don't think you can call on dad to come and take the boogeyman out. You're just going to live in fear. Maybe it's there, maybe it's not. It could be a real thing. It could be something you're really struggling with, and it could be really scary, guys. You can encounter some really scary things. We might think we're okay until we go to that doctor visit, and they give us a diagnosis, and they tell you you've got a terminal illness. And suddenly what you, th- you thought your faith was sizable enough, but, but then it's not. How do you increase the size of your faith? And as I wrestled with this, I thought, man, I don't just want to walk away from this passage going, have big faith, guys. Good night, you know, or go have lunch. Have big faith, how? How do I increase my faith? I think we need to understand what faith is. Faith is not kneeling by your bedside and going, mm, you know, just kind of white knuckling, just like, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, 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 believe. Believe what? It's your faith in the sovereign power of Jesus Christ and your understanding of it. Your understanding can increase. So I want us to leave here with a couple of uh, uh, practical helps, you know, that can help us increase our faith. Now, of course, we can pray and we ask for it, and that is not a small thing. Ask for faith. He'll give you faith. He'll increase that. Some of you are like, well, isn't that like asking for patience? When I ask for patience, he's going to put something in there. Well, maybe. If you ask for faith, maybe you'll get a trial but he's going to put something in there that he, he knows you can, you can pass. This isn't too much. Look at me. Focus on me. Watch me. Not me, Lucas, Jesus. Right? <laughs> you know, watch him. Keep your eyes fixed on him. Why? Because he's the author and perfecter of your faith. And so one of the things I thought of, and this is really simple, but if we think about it, maybe not as simple as we think. There's, there's something that explains to us who God is and what God is like, and I'm holding it. 
And guys, we need to be students of this. We, we need to get into it. Sunday sermons is not enough. Waiting for the pastor to explain a paragraph to you, that, that's not enough. You need to be thirstier than that. You need to be hungry. You don't wait for Sunday lunch to eat, right? Before you even got here, some of you had two meals, not counting Starbucks, coffee. You know, the, the things that we take to sustain us, to keep us going. This has to be more than that. And I think that was a little bit of the point from last week when he multiplied the bread and he's t- kind of hinting toward them like, I'm bread, guys. I'm bread. I'm the one that gives you satisfaction. And so I, th- I think we need to get into it. However, however, it's really easy to just, I'm going to read through John. You know, I- I'm going to read through the Psalms. You have to read Scripture with an eye to who God is. And oftentimes we read scripture with an eye toward, what does it say for me? What's this, what do you got for me? What do you got for me? You know, mm, that's not practical. I don't like that. Ooh, Proverbs, I like that practical. Something for me, for me, something for me. All of scripture points to the character and nature and work of God through Jesus Christ. That's why we switched the curriculum downstairs to the gospel project. We're trying to teach the kids from Genesis to Revelation. All of it is about Jesus. It involves you, but it's not about you. And so all of Scripture, you're asking yourself, when you read a psalm, when you read a prophet, when you read a piece of a gospel, even when you're reading the book of Revelation, don't get so caught up in, our, are these real locusts or are these helicopters? What's going on here, you know? Is the earth really going to burn or is it going to burn? Is it symboli- symbolic? The point is who Jesus is and what he's going to do based on what he's done on the cross. And so when we lose the focus on Jesus, we're not increasing our faith, we're increasing our Bible knowledge, right? And we're looking for stuff for me because things are still focused on me. And I'm going through such a hard time. Is there a verse? Pastor, can you email me a verse that makes me feel better? Yeah, any verse that puts your focus on God more than your circumstance is going to make you feel better. But once you realize that you're not going to Scripture to make you feel good about yourself, you're going to Scripture to help increase your faith on who the subject of Scripture is. Does that, does that help? It's the set of lenses that you put on before you read the Bible. The lenses can be, what is this about me? But take those off and put on the ones that are asking, what is this about God? Because that's what's going to change me. That's what's going to increase my faith. My faith is in on, on who he is. My faith is not on how awesome I am. My faith is not on my spiritual gifting or my ability to just, let me just strap down and get through this storm. That's faith in me. God is bigger than the storm. And if it's going to last... He's going to give me what I need to get through it. I can walk on it just like he can because he empowers me. Because he's awesome, not because I am. So I think we want to, we want to read through scripture with an eye toward that. Let me give you a couple more. I think, I think, guys, we need to read from people who have read scripture well. Other people who have been doing what I just suggested for a lot longer than us and are really good at it, read what they publish. Now, increasingly, you know, I walk through, like, the family bookstore, and I'm like, oh, man. It's, it's hard to make, like, a recommendation list based on a lot of the fluff that's out there that disregards rule number one, the one I just told you. A lot of books out there about the Bible are what this is doing for you, seven steps to a better you type stuff, right? Forget that stuff. Here's stuff that you need. Some of you are familiar with stuff like this. A.W. Tozer, The Pursuit of God small but don't let that fool you you can't fly through this stuff it's thick 
you get the sense that this man has been spending time with God and you're kind of sitting with him, going through scripture verses. It's, it's explaining from scripture who God is and what it's like to pursue him. Read this. This is a Christian classic. He has another one, Knowledge of the Holy. Very similar, very good. We have stuff, a lot of you have read this one. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. You see how old these, I, this might have been, actually I think this is Pastor Ortloff's edition and he let me have it. Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I mean, that's a top 10 list of a lot of theologians and pastors just explaining to you knowing God. Let's go through scripture. He's going to take you through Bible passages and explain who God is. Now, why is this book not that popular anymore? Because it doesn't have the word you in the title. It doesn't have the word me in the title. It doesn't end every chapter with seven steps to make you happy or things that you can do right now to make your life more successful. And so it's not popular. He's just trying to explain to you what scripture says about God. You're like, well, where's the practical help? You can't get more practical than that. It's going to change you, and it's going to change your view of your circumstances. I'm going through another book with a few guys in our church, and, and I had not read this till this year, Christian Beliefs by Wayne Grudem. Look, it's small. It's got little questions at the end of every chapter just to ask yourself and see, you know, did I really get what he was putting down in here? It's simple. It's accessible. I'm, I'm not recommending books where you have to carry around a dictionary and an encyclopedia next to it, you know? This is stuff that is accessible, and you can, it'll help you dig. It can't replace Scripture. Don't replace it, but it's going to be a tool to help you see a little better as you're navigating through Scripture. And then I thought of another one related to the verse that John put up earlier, um, and I don't have it up on the screen. Listen to this passage in Romans. Okay, Just listen to it. We want to know God, right? That's the whole point of faith. Faith is increasing your understanding of who God is. Not just a theology exam, but really understanding his power, his sovereignty, how he's above all circumstances. Romans 1, it says, um, what can be known about God is plain to them. To who? Everyone. What can be known about God is plain to them because it's shown to them. How is it shown to them? His invisible attributes... What are those? His eternal power and divine nature. This is Romans 1.20. His invisible power and his divine nature, the fact that he's over all things and sovereign is plain to everyone, even if they don't have a Bible. How? They have been clearly perceived. They've been clearly seen ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so I I hope this doesn't sound like, you know, a pitch to be a little more earthy. But guys, we got to get out there and enjoy nature and marvel at this stuff. When you read the Psalms, David is out there writing this stuff underneath a starry sky. And he's like, the heavens you've made, the song we just sang, indescribable. I mean, we're putting stuff in there. The other song we sing, uh, God of Wonders. You know, these are things that put our focus on, you know, here we get all our focus on man-made stuff skyscrapers, buildings, cars, vehicles. At night, you can't even see the stars because of all the stuff that we produce. And it kind of blocks us from seeing just the raw nature that displays the power and majesty of God. Let's get out there, rent a camper, hang out with a few K- KOAs, 
Someone's like, I don't like being, you know, dirty and stuff. Uh, get over it, you know, get out there. Or stay in a hotel, but when it gets real dark, pull over to some obscure point in the highway and get out and walk a couple yards into the side and just look at the Milky Way. Go to Utah or something, you know, like get, get out there. And instead of all our vacations being like Disney World and, and like man-made places and Six Flags, how about we just go out and hike, you know, go see the Grand Canyon, anything, something. Go take a hike in Bussy Woods. But get off the pavement and get through that little trail, you know, and, and, and just look at the trees, listen to the birds. And I mean, it, it sounds maybe to some of us a little, I don't know, corny or something. But God created nature with such a variety and it intentionally displayed his power through it. Some people go, well, some people believe that the earth is... Uh, really, really old. And the reason why they believe that is because they choose dating methods to accommodate evolution. And it's a lot more complicated than that. Some Christians believe maybe God created it to look old. I'm not sure I necessarily believe that. But if he did, if God created it with the appearance of age, why would he do that? I have an idea. It's one way to display his majesty. I mean, the size of the mountains shifting tectonic plates that create the earth. I mean, if they move a little bit too far, we, you know, we die. I mean, powerful, powerful things that are beyond our imagination. We have, we, we've not discovered most of the species that are in the ocean because we can't get that deep. I mean, this stuff, if you just look at it and, and marvel at it, it increases your awareness of the power of God, and that increases your faith. The God that created and carved out the Grand Canyon with his pinky, you know, the God that holds the seas together. And guys, that's Jesus Christ. You read Colossians, it says Jesus, all things were created by him, for him, through him, and he's the one that holds all things together. Jesus holds it together. And so he's powerful over creation. When we appreciate creation, we appreciate the creator, and that's Jesus Christ. And so guys, I think, I think these are ways in which we increase our faith so that when we're hit with a storm, when we're hit with a trial, we can get out of that boat Instead of always praying, remove the storm, God, remove the storm, get the storm, God, why is this storm here? We can get out of the boat and walk through the storm. Isn't that a greater miracle than God just clearing everything out of your way all the time? Let's just make this a cakewalk for all Christians. You know God's not going to do that. Sometimes he'll remove it, but a lot of times he just wants to empower you to get out of that boat, get out of that comfort zone, stop clinging to the edge, and walk with me, talk with me, and let's walk through this together. We're not going to get that if we're not filling ourselves on a steady diet of increasing our knowledge of who Jesus is and what Scripture says about him, what creation says about him. Amen? I don't want to invite the worship team to come forward. and um, I just want to say a small prayer just to get us prepped for worship as we close. Father, help us as we, um, Lord, as we land the plane here and start approaching the terminal and we're going to all kind of exit and go about our own ways and have lunch and go about our week. Um, Help us to leave with a focus on Jesus Christ that is greater than our focus on our circumstances. Help us to increase our faith, Lord. It's little. So so for so many of us, so often, it's, it's just a small, dwindled down version of faith. We ask that you would increase it, make it larger, stronger, more resilient, Help us to understand, not just on paper, God, but in reality to understand how powerful you are, how majestic you are, how glorious you are, how sovereign you are, that it 
is beyond our understanding. And Lord, help us to have the faith that it takes to step out in faith when you ask us to and to endure whatever storms you ask us to endure, knowing that you can stop that storm at any time. Maybe the reason why you don't stop it right away is because you want us to walk on waters that are not easy all the time. So we need that from you as we worship you in this closing song, Lord. Impress that into our hearts and change us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing together.